Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 668 with my guest Leslie Winnick. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. Don't think of it as a doctor's office or a therapist's office. Think of it as uh, as the waiting room outside where people awkwardly stare at each other and uh, feel like they're the weirdest person in the room. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod, also the social media handles you can follow us at. And... Um, we are at 792 paid uh, monthly Patreon donors, and our goal is to get to 1,500 so that the podcast can break even. We really, really need uh, some financial help, as I've mentioned on the past couple of episodes. I made the decision to walk away from my sponsorship with uh, BetterHelp. Um, they were they accounted for over half of my income, but uh, for ethical reasons, uh, not for the quality of their therapy, but uh, for um, questions and issues that I had with their business practices, uh, I made the the decision to walk away from that. So if you hear ads that are still in episodes for uh, better help. Uh, I no longer endorse them. And I will say that if you are currently a uh, client receiving therapy from better help and it's helping you, please stay with it. Um, it uh, you, you getting the help is, uh, is the most important thing. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself C. And uh, she had written in uh, before saying that uh, the setting on the struggle in a sentence survey won't let her uh, go back and take it a second time. Um, and then she wrote in and said, sorry, it's the voice in my head survey. And so I went and I changed that. And all the surveys uh, should allow you to take them a second time uh, if you want to want to fill those out. And if for some reason they don't, let me know. And by the way, all of the surveys, uh, we do not gather your any personal information about you, i.e. email address or IP address, uh, because I want people f to feel free to be totally, totally honest. This is from the love survey filled out by Kenny, and they write, I love when I go to make a smoothie and it's the perfect consistency, not too runny or too thick. It's just perfect. That's a great one. can't even remember the last time I had a smoothie. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Irish Redhead. And about her anxiety, she writes, My panic disorder feels like all my skin is falling off and everyone is looking at a raw red body. Who? Who? That's intense. Is your raw skin the consistency of a perfect smoothie? Because if it is, I think... Uh, Maybe you need to look at the, the sunny side. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by Wildflower, and she asks, what type of thinker are you? Visual thinker, 
kinesthetic or pattern thinker, auditory or verbal thinker, or a combination of any of these. Um, I think I might be a visual thinker. Um, and the subcategory of that is doom slash grandiosity thinker. Because <laughs> I picture I picture things that are usually in very black and white terms. But I also think uh, verbally, uh, a lot of times I will have like a word stuck in my brain, almost like it can't be filed away, whether it's somebody's last name that's kind of odd or a word that you don't hear often in the English language. And, and I will find myself throughout the day um, kind of just thinking of that word in my mind or it'll pop into my mind. And, and there, I don't know, there's something soothing about it. it, it it's kind of weird. Um, and uh, any comments to make the podcast better? Uh, can you interview some neurodivergent people, specifically dyscalculia? Dyscalculia. Uh, and that is uh, people who have a learning disability around uh, math and, and numbers. Um, I might be misrepresenting that. This is from the body shame survey filled out by a guy who calls himself unofficially Italian. I think we've read a survey from him before. What do you like or dislike about your body? I dislike the size of my penis, thanks to society. I used to watch a lot of porn, and I understand that most men can develop self-consciousness when compared to a porn star. But I don't watch it anymore. It's been a few years. However, I'm surprised by social media and how it has continued this self-consciousness in me. Every time I scroll Instagram, I'm bombarded by videos, memes, and other posts suggesting that the only men that matter are the ones who are well-endowed. Logically, I know how toxic social media is in general, but I still find myself getting sucked into the narrative. Yeah, I think it's... it's uh a lot more common than, or maybe people know that it's, that it's common. You don't really hear men ever talk about it though, about their insecurity. At least I don't. This is from the body shame survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, oh, this is her friend Wildflower again. What do you like or dislike about your body? And she writes, my mom constantly tells me I don't look good and I'm fat and dressed like a slut. Other than that, your mom is very complimentary. When we were kids, she would always tell me my younger sister, who's four years younger, was better looking than me. I wasn't allowed to wear high heels till she could, or a bikini. My mom bought her bras when she was, uh, when she was one enough while I got her old hand-me-downs, I think. I think that she meant to say when she was old enough while I got uh, old hand-me-downs. I've only just now realized it was her comments that contributed to me having body issues and an eating disorder. I am now over that, but she still continues to call me fat and ugly and that I dress like a slut even though I am almost 40. I also compete in pinup pageants and have got awards, so she can't say I'm completely hideous, but she does. I hope, first of all, that fucking sucks. And I'm sorry that that is the mom that you were dealt. And I would encourage you to ask yourself if it's worth maintaining contact 
with your mom. I'm not saying cut contact with your mom. I don't know the the full breadth of the relationship with her. But what she says to you is super, super fucked up and toxic. And um, just the thought, you know, one of the things that I like to do on the podcast, although I do often give people advice, uh, I feel like the wheelhouse when I'm when I'm being a good host is is throwing out questions for people to ask themselves. This is uh, from the love survey filled out by our friend German Couch Potato, um, and uh, they write. Uh, I, I love reading a really good fan fiction and feeling all the feels. I love long, meaningful, and authentic talks at night when everyone is tired enough to get vulnerable. I love cactuses. And then in parentheses, is that the right plural? Question mark. I, it might be cacti. I'm not sure. I love the beach and the sea. I love to feel the warmth of the sun and the wind playing with my hair. I love the smell of freshly grinded coffee beans and the sound of the coffee machine. I love being childish with my friends. I love listening to music and coming up with stories while traveling. I love the feeling of a long summer skirt on my legs. I love the feeling of grass and sand under my feet. And I have to stop now. Those are awesome. Thank you. Danke schön. This is an awful moment filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Anxiety Puddle. And she writes, I've recently fallen back into some anxious and obsessive patterns and have been having a really hard time. I have a history with psych meds and have always had a hard time using them responsibly when there are any addictive effects. Daily life was getting too hard, so I made an appointment with my primary, primary care doctor and told her about my anxiety. She gave me a prescription for a whole boatload of benzos, which felt like hitting the mother load. I cannot lie. Three weeks later, I found myself on the internet ordering a lockbox with a thing called Fortress Mode that allows you to lock away medication, junk food, your phone, whatever it may be. You can lock the box for up to 30 days with no way to access it other than contacting customer service. In parentheses, how embarrassing. But anyway, I had to read some reviews before buying, and they were too perfect. One user talked about how this particular lockbox was pretty sturdy, and others he'd bought in the past had been too easy to smash open with a hammer. Another one said this lockbox was great because you couldn't pop the top off with a screwdriver no matter how hard you tried. I told a friend about it, and she laughed her head off and said if one of her vices was inside, she would literally run the thing over if she had to. God, we really are all in it together. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I've got a really question uh, the the prescribing of benzos, unless it was for uh, short term. I mean, prescribing benzos in the long term is a terrible, terrible decision. Uh, and I don't know. Uh, you might want to consider seeing a psychiatrist. There, there can be some some primary care doctors that I'm sure, though well-intentioned, um, do not think about things in the long term the way a good psychiatrist might. 
So uh, just throwing that out there and the fact that there you have an addictive relationship with them can be really pro- problematic. And, you know, people can't die from a heroin uh, withdrawal, but people can die from a benzo withdrawal. They, they are f- fucking serious. Um, so, yeah, just throwing that out there. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Chrissy. And uh, she struggles with bipolar, too. And she writes uh, uh, to the question, uh, give us a snapshot from your life that highlights one of your issues or struggles. And she writes, I must stay in control or something horrible might happen if I don't brush my teeth after I put on deodorant, leave for work at exactly 721. Head voice won't stop talking. Am I the only one talking to herself? Must put on music so the thoughts quiet down. Holy shit, I'm losing my mind. Now, let's do this all over again tomorrow morning. Fuck my life. Man, being a being a slave to the uh, the compulsive the compulsive actions. Whew, that is a that is a prison. We are going to take a quick break. Let's see if we have an ad. And then finally, this is from the love survey, and this is uh, filled out by Christy. And she writes, I've been feeling down lately, but knowing that my two dogs are right now sleeping comfortably in my bed makes my heart feel warm. No worries in the world for them. How it should be for all dogs. My consciousness might be disintegrated heavy weighted blanket on my brain symptomatically and i can't think straight things present themselves for a reason and i can't see straight i couldn't even drive the first movie that i remember watching with him post-traumatic stress when i was like five years old was pulp fiction <laughs> and moral injury i would act out the scenes gonna go to hell or... with my barbies <laughs> the greatest source of our suffering ordinary is where all the good stuff happens is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions it is very hard to heal and dark isolation. I developed compassion. It is in connection and community where that happens. The process was nearly unbearable. Like, I'm going to have to kill myself. We'll be right back after this. (laughs) I am here with Leslie Winnick. I want to thank you, first of all, for being a Patreon donor and a member of our uh, weekly online hangout on Zoom. The waiting room. Oh, it's so The good. waiting room. Uh, the first Sunday that we did it, um, mm-hmm. share, share what the, the moment that happened that kind of yeah, led the, to me saying, I think you'd be a great guest. Yeah. And what a great subject. I think it started out about feeling invisible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think this is a sort of a common thing with women of a certain age, and I'm certainly that age, I'm 65, and I've noticed it in the past recent, you know, few years, and I think the funny thing that happened is, I think you were going around asking people to tell their stories or mm-hmm. some such thing, and then I, you didn't call on me, maybe there were nine or ten of us, and I remember, you know, in my own soul thinking, oh my God, Actually, I can swear, right? Yeah. It's all right. Yeah. I forgot. Oh, my fucking God. Maybe I am invisible. And what do I do? 
I don't want to be rude and I don't want to insert myself and ha. Ah. So I said something and then um, then I was worried you would feel bad. So we got into that loop of, you know, no one should feel bad. So invisibility, I think, for a lot of people is a thing. And for me, I have noticed it over the course of, of just the past few years, really. The first time was with, I have three adult daughters. They're amazing people. Hi, Kate. Hi, Em. Hi, Dot. And they, um, I was in a bar with Dot. We had been on a road trip. We were trying to get a drink. And I was at the bar. And I literally could not get the attention of, of the bartender. I thought, oh, this is weird. Oh, I'm invisible. And then I went back and I told her and expressed my frustration. She went up and essentially got immediate service pretty mm -hmm. much. So I developed a policy that if I, I love eating out, I love going out by myself. And um, I developed a policy that if someone ignored me or found me invisible, I would leave them like a nickel tip. And usually I've been a waitress many mm -hmm. years of my life. I am a great tipper. But I would leave a little tip and a little tiny note that said, hey, you really shouldn't ignore women of a certain age. You missed out on a fantastic tip. Do better next time. Your mother wouldn't want you to be this way. <laughs> and you know, I've maybe left that note literally twice. Yeah. But the whole idea of being invisible, um, I think it's a thing that that I assume more women experience than men of a certain age, but I'm not sure. I, I, I would think so. Uh, one of the things that, I and I think it was in our Zoom hangout, that um, one of our participants uh, who who uh, is a trans woman, I'm sorry, a trans man, mm -hmm. uh, shared is that when they were uh, presenting as Male, or I'm sorry, as female, yes, um, people wouldn't be that interested in their opinion. And then when they transitioned to male, suddenly oh. people wanted to know what they thought. Oh, Paul, it is stunning. And I spent 25 years at, at working at Stanford, lovely place, amazing place. I, you know, love the community there, love the work. But I was in just a couple of meetings where. A woman would say something or I would say something, and I swear, 10 minutes into the meeting, a man would then say that thing, and it would be suddenly, oh, what an excellent point. Didn't happen much, because it's a pretty good wokeish, yeah. whatever the word is, place. But, yeah, it happens. I've heard that a lot. My ex-wife, who worked in writing rooms, oh. would share that quite frequently. She would come yeah. home and say... You know, I pitched this idea, and ten minutes later, one of the guys in the room would pitch it, and everybody like, "Oh, I love that." And you, 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 a feel like, "Am I crazy? Yes. Is this really happening?" And then after a while, you get you know pissy enough or angry enough that then you get better at saying what the truth is. Like, hey, you know, actually, that was something I just brought up, mm -hmm. and it's just so you act like a bitch. I'm known. I'm known as a bitch in the circles I travel in. Um, no, that's my problem. I'm known as a person who's and perhaps of course, afraid and of, of course, being a bitch. I'm, I'm oh, I'm kidding. Yes, well, you don't have to uh -huh. tell me that. So let's uh -huh. talk some more about the invisibility, and let, let's start with the thoughts that come up in your uh -huh. head when you're when you're feeling that the things that you. Um, think about yourself and think about 
yeah. the, the people who are ignoring you. Yeah. Well, so here's the good news and bad news story. The bad news is that it, you know, it feels um, sort of just unfair. And like, you know, I'm a person with a, I think, pretty interesting history and life experience. But the, here's the good news. It's, I've learned since we originally talked about that, however many you know, weeks ago, and, and since then, that the invisibility sort of you can turn it around. And so here are the advantages of being invisible. And I think my sisters and a lot of my friends will totally get this. It gives you a stunning amount of permission to just be who you want to be. Because if I, another example of invisibility, I can walk down the street in San Francisco, love San Francisco, and I swear people don't really notice you. They don't really see you. Once I tripped and this guy comes running up and says, you know, ma'am, are you all right? I was like, well, there you go. He saw me do that. But there is a little bit of a sense of I'm just living my life here, a little bit invisible, but it gives you permission. So what does it give me permission to do? To do exactly what I want to do, including some crazy things. Usually I wear ridiculously sparkly things. I give out magic wands because there's a whole thing I believe about magic and spontaneity and wands and doing what you want to do in life. And it really does. Oh, it took me into hobby stuff. I never, I've always wanted to be Ginger Rogers. Who who doesn't? And I wanted to do ballroom. And and for our younger yes. guests, oh. she, she <laughs> is oh, one of the preeminent dancers. She was the uh, dancing partner of Fred Astaire, who's considered, you know, yeah. one of the greatest dancers ever and their their movies in the what would have been the 50s Probably the, i think the 40s and 50s 40s and 50s Just they were gorgeous. it yeah. they were it and if you haven't ever seen one kind of do yourself a favor find someone or very or, romantic so beautiful yeah, yeah. so i always mm-hmm. wanted to be her but at some point in my life i had a career in raising kids and a single mom for most a long time so i didn't really have the chance and then Part of this invisibility, hey, why don't I live my life? I'm now doing ballroom dancing. I've been doing it for a few years, and I don't care how bad I look. I don't care that, you know, it took me forever to get to the, you know, whatever level I'm supposed to be at, newcomer, bronze, all the things. And I I have a more grace, maybe, for my own life because I have felt, yeah. I, I mean, Paul, this is a little bit of a tangent. Here we go. It is very interesting and sometimes a little odd to think of myself as 65 heading towards the end of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sooner or later, my mom got sick um, with ovarian cancer when she was 75, died when she was 78. So, you know, 10 years, if I have 10 years before I get some horrible thing, it's like, well, fuck, 10 years is nothing. Um, my dad lived longer um and you have experienced a double mastectomy and uh a hysterectomy yes well technically it was it was i can barely say this word technically it was an oophorectomy why did they name a thing such a silly thing that meaning it means only your ovaries ovaries. yeah Yeah, and your cervix so why it's not a hysterectomy there are other things i guess i was lucky enough to keep but um and that was an interesting experience i think i was early 50s when i had that done so as we were talking before the podcast i immediately went into intense menopause 
And the other thing I wanted to say before we start all this, my memory is so terrible. I mean, my Since big then. fear. Oh, yeah. My big fear is that we're going to be talking. I'm going to launch into some story that, you know, you've I've just told in the beginning. So it, give me a hand signal. Yeah, like, well, stop you're talking. with a kindred spirit on, oh, on that one. It's embarrassing. Oh, it's terrible. I In the morning, I go to make coffee, and I'm like, you know, doing the first step. I put the coffee in, I, I get the water in, and then I sort of, well, I never do turn it on. Or I start folding laundry in the middle of that, and then, I, then I'm folding laundry. It feels like I suddenly have ADHD, which I mm-hmm. technically I don't think I have, but my ability to concentrate and see something through, ridiculous. Yeah. yeah so... So let's let's circle back to the the thoughts and the feelings you've shared. Kind of the mm. positive uh, things about invisibility and a kind of uh, you feeling the freedom mm-hmm. to be yourself, to mm. not not feel judged. Um, talk about the the intense negative feelings that I'm assuming they're intense. Mm-hmm. Um, be it rage. Uh, mm-hmm. You mentioned that it. Uh, I think I think you said that it feels unfair. Was that yeah. one? Yeah, yeah. And I think when I relate it to the feelings of, you know, wait a minute. If I'm invisible, you you the person who's perhaps making me feel that way. And I know no one's making me feel anyway, but right. I feel that way in some conversation or something. It just seems so odd to me that. I'm being discounted for my experience or for whatever it is that I'm that I kind of offer the world. And to be clear, I don't feel this way with any of the people in my life. Mm-hmm. My friends, my daughters, my husband, my sweetheart, all the thing my husband's sweetheart by the way, mm-hmm. are the same person. Um, and so I don't feel it that much but to get into like the way underneath of it all. Um I as we've talked about I think in in our um, waiting room group. Mm-hmm. I've had a f- five big, horrible episodes of depression that have two of which, maybe three. I count my depressions based on the cities I've lived in. Mm-hmm. So my first one, I was in London, stunning abroad. It did not go well. Had did you cry with early. an accent when you were in London? <laughs> it's funny. My husband's an actor and Mark P. Robinson, and God forbid you get rid of the P because yeah. there are many of those. And he right now is in a show where he has this gorgeous, very amazing British accent. I can't do any accents. I can yeah. do a little like Yiddish guilt. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah. Uh, but what are we talking about? Um, <laughs> you're talking to the, you're talking oh, to the wrong, oh, oh the, episodes. The, 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 yes, yes, the depressions. Yes, yes. So the first one was in London when I was on an, a study abroad program in junior year. I had to come back. I had to abandon it. I was suicidally depressed, actually. And, you know, trigger warnings abound here. Um, I literally tried to kill myself in London when I was, how old were you when you were a junior in college? You're 20. 20-ish. Yeah. I had never really understood what depression was. I went in, into a profound dive, had no security around me, no family, no friends. I was at a program. You know, it was fine, but just they thought, ooh, that woman doesn't seem to eat much, doesn't seem to sleep much, which are all the things that mm-hmm. leave when you get depressed. And thank God the director of the program said, you need to go home. 
and I and I got myself home, but not after one night of total despair, wandering around London, hoping I could step in front of a car and be gone. So that was the London Depression. That led, you know, years later, um, quite a few years later, I ended up I guess the next one was a really, really bad postpartum. So jump ahead a long time. And I was a married person. I have a husband. He is my ex-husband. I think mm-hmm. husband is a good... I've never heard that. That's term. good. I, I put it in the in the uh, Urban Dictionary. Mm-hmm. I've applied to mm-hmm. get credit for that word. So my uh, husband at the time... Um, I had had, we have twin, I had twin daughters, Kate and Em, who are now 37. I mean, how the fuck can they be 37 when I'm <laughs> 44? Um, and then I had a third daughter, my youngest daughter, Dot. And when she, after she was born, I had a really bad postpartum situation. And I, ooh, I mean, postpartum is rough. A couple of our other group members have had it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I feel, so badly saying this, I had a little tiny baby. I had five-year-old twins. I just thought I was useless and dark, and maybe everyone would just be better off without me. And this is the really scary thing, because I can barely believe it was me, even though it was totally me. It got so bad. We had a uh, big Hawaiian woman, this amazing, we just called her auntie, and auntie would come, and she was both helping me, trying to have me eat something, because my big thing is I stop eating. <laughs> if only I could do that now, but mm. no. Um, and I actually had a plan, like a big plan. I had a pink um, sweatshirt and sweatpants in the closet, and this is, you know, hard to admit to. And I had taken a knife, a kitchen knife, and I had hidden this in my closet in Hawaii, which is supposed to be, ironically, of course, paradise. And I would look, when I would drive to work, I worked at Hawaii Public Radio for, for a couple of years, um, and I would drive to work pretty depressed over the Pali Highway. And I would, like, consider where would I go to do it, like off the Pali where no one would find me. I mean, I'm shaky when I'm saying that because I, it was very real. And thank God for medication. Thank God for therapy and therapists. Thank God for support systems. Um, yeah. So that was the Hawaii depression. Should I keep going or, or I, th- I think or we, 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 get, yeah, we get a, a, a picture of that and some of the stuff that you've shared in our, in our support group. Yeah. Um, is uh, you you paint such a a vivid picture uh and and I got to say of um the vignettes that people have painted of their depression mm-hmm. yours were some of the most extreme mm-hmm. uh in in terms of debilitation yeah. and the fact that you're still here oh yeah <laughs> and you and you got through it and I can't imagine what it's like when you are Experiencing this moment of having a newborn and society tells you that you will be at your happiest and you feel not only despair, but I would imagine disconnected 
oh, yeah. from them as if they're, I don't know, what, a, a, a thing? Uh, oh, someone who you, you look at this little tiny, beautiful little, beautiful baby, blue eyes and everything, and you, you can't connect and you know you are their nurturer. I mean, literally, I recall when I had Kate and I'm t- identical twins, for some reason, you know, I did not get depressed when I had them. There was no post- postpartum then. And I was like breastfeeding like a crazy woman. It was constant. And I did it for longer than I thought. It was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. And Dot, when she was born, because I had such a terrible postpartum, you know, everything just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it because I just felt that terrible disconnect, as you said, and and fear that I couldn't be the mom. I just couldn't do it. And, you know, although I have a love of my life that I've now been with for 25 years, and he is, you know, the the person I was destined to be with, I was with Kate Amandat's dad at the time. Um, and you know, he thankfully helped me get the care I needed, um, which included a stay at, I, you know, I assume it still exists. There was an inpatient place. It was called Kahi Mohala. How can that name still be in my head? And I think I was there five days and, you know, life-saving, life-saving. And did you voluntarily go? I spent one night at the Queens Hospital in Hawaii where actually Dot was born. It's such a beautiful name for a hospital, the Queen's Hospital. What island? And, uh, Oahu, outside of Honolulu. I love Oahu. Oh, it's just... Not as much as Kauai, but Oahu yeah. oh, still... Kauai is, is uh, Oahu the in the winter is the most fascinating, the size of the waves there. I've seen the Grand Canyon. Nothing compared oh, to seeing oh, pipeline no, sure. when it's 20 feet. Oh. I, Nothing. scary even it. thinking about it. Yeah. Well, and we lived on the windward side of the island. We lived in Kailua, which mm-hmm. is this wonderful little beach town. Um, and that's when I worked at Hawaii Public Radio. So I would gotcha. do drive the thing over the right over the poly. I'm sorry, I interrupted. You. I'm sorry. Yep. Um, so I ended up spending one night at the infamous seventh floor of the Queen's Hospital. My husband at the time, I really and I don't want to use his name because mm-hmm. I don't know that he's yeah just want to keep his anonymity um he didn't know what to do because here i was not functional i was like a deer in the headlights all the time just the, the whatever happens when your brain switches into that mode and he took me there to the emergency room because he didn't know what else to do and they i spent one night at the seventh floor where i met i mean it was locked seventh floor of a I mean, I think the Queen's Hospital is probably the biggest hospital on Oahu in, in downtown Honolulu, and it was a scary place. I what mean, are some were, of the things you saw or experienced? Oh, my God. Well, there was one guy, um, he thought he had killed his dad. He had not. He was a huge man. I just remember him. He was like a mountain of a man. And we would be in groups together. He was very gentle. And we all understood he hadn't actually killed his dad, mm-hmm. but he thought he had. Um, and one day I went to do my laundry. I was there long enough to do laundry, and I find some amount of peace doing laundry. And I remember finding his clothes in the dryer. So I just folded his clothes, and there was this big yellow shirt I folded mm-hmm. and big boxers and all this. And I just put it in a little stack and put a little note on his name with his name on it. 
And he found it, and he came up to me, and I was, he was very intense, and he just starts weeping out of gratitude. I mean, you know, to this day, it gets me. He was, he said, no one's ever done something so nice for me. I was like, oh, Jesus. And there were so many people there who um, were hurting, you know, and yet we were all hurting in such different ways. And there was another woman, oh, this is crazy. She had lost her ability to bend at the joint. She Any had, joint? Any joint. Her Well, her hips, I guess, because she would sit at the couch. But her right. arms were out. Her legs were straight in front of her. And she was talked a lot about conflict with her mom and her sister. I never totally understood what was going on with her. Um, but it presented in her body. And we've talked about the somatic stuff, what mm-hmm. presents in your body. Um, and she she was locked in with that emotion. And it was uh, maybe six or seven months later when I was out, I literally saw her at a Nordstrom's. Or no, it wasn't Nordstrom's. It was Hawaii. Liberty House or whatever mm-hmm. the thing was called. And I saw her at buying sunglasses. And I turned and I said, you know, Karen, I think we know each other. I'm Leslie from Kai, the group. And she hugs me and we're talking and she is 100% fine. And th- your your body takes it in. I mean, for me, because when I'm depressed, I can't sleep, I can't eat. You know, I turn into this kind of skeletal person. I always only wore black. I mean, ironically, I still always only wear black pretty much. But then it wasn't really a choice. It was just, you know, put on the same pants, put on the same shirt, just do your best just to get out of bed. You know, if you can get out of bed, that was a big victory. You know, taking a shower was huge. And to this day, I was talking to to, um, Mark before I came here, and I've been healthy for a long time. My mental health has been really good. But I still check in with myself all the fucking time to make sure there's nothing on the edge of my what's going on. I think of it as a, I used to think of my depression as being locked in a dark closet with a mosquito. And when my depression was bad, the one mosquito that, you know, when you're mm-hmm. relatively healthy, you can get the one mosquito that's buzzing around your ear. When you're really depressed, there are hundreds of them and you are screwed and, and they're moving helpless. at the speed of light yeah and you <laughs> just know oh my god and so right now i mean thankfully you know i have a mosquito or two mm-hmm. but they're all gettable uh which is thank god for that so let's let's circle back to the thoughts and feelings that that come up when you know, you feel um in, invisible mm. um I'm feeling a little bad right now because I, it's a little the invisibility theme. I sort of relate a little less to it on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but but let me think on it. I mean, probably because I found these little self-preservation things, like the you know not leaving someone a tip, mm-hmm. or and I I do. 
I'm so curious if it's more for women than for men. Well, it's it, it's interesting that you say that because uh, I was talking to a friend of mine on the phone the other day, and we were just laughing about the fact that, you know, we're at that age that, you know, you never think about when you're young. We're, we're 60. And, right. and he was saying how he finds it funny how invisible he is around oh. um, younger women. You know, you they go. used to check him out. and But I don't think it affects him and probably men in general the way it affects because it has, much, I think, much more to do with physicality. I think if he were to offer his opinion on something, right. it would be listened to more. And I think when somebody's discounting your intelligence, I th- yeah. I would imagine that but, hits you even yeah. deeper than your your physicality. I I when I was I don't know twenty three, um, I was hooking up with this woman who was thirty three, and mm. it, and and I was kind of her boy toy. And I remember one time saying something, and she wasn't even listening to Ooh. me. And I remember. I found it funny because I thought, buddy, this is karma. This is karma. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah. The number of times that you were just using a woman for sex. And, you know, I, I, I'm kind of amazed as I look back at that, that I was even aware of mm-hmm. that because that pattern of, of kind of objectifying and discounting would continue for years and years. Yeah. Um, but I remember that feeling like, oh, I'm a thing. Yeah. I'm a thing. And what changed in you when you stopped doing the objectifying women sort of routine? The support, the support group around around intimacy and that yeah. bringing up the uh, the childhood uh, sexual trauma and the and yeah. the and the mom stuff. And you know, I I got in touch with the uh, the feelings because I finally gave weight to them instead of saying, well, yes. you're just a terrible son, you're a baby, you're an exaggerator, you know, all that, mm-hmm. all that stuff. And when I shared that in a support group, you know, which was half men, half women, and one time in particular when I looked up and, and I was staring at the ground sharing this and I was choking back tears um which, which which I don't experience anymore when I talk about it. It it but this was a short window where all the emotions were coming up and I looked up and there were uh women with tears rolling down sure. their face. And that was the moment that I realized, oh, maybe I'm not an unlovable pig monster, you know, whatever whatever you want to call it. And that's when Something inside me kind of softened and let, um, I, I suppose one of the reasons that, that I objectified was that there, there was, um, a feeling of safety in someone being an object because then I don't have to worry about them smothering me with their needs or whatever scenario I'd created right. in my, in my head, but that was the beginning of something in me softening and um, learning platonic intimacy um, and feeling 
I grew up without sisters, and I mm. suddenly began, and, and I had always longed for for that uh, as a kid. So you know, females were kind of this mysterious uh, thing, and, and you know, when your template for the opposite sex is when it's someone who's very complex, and there were many things about my mom that were that were great, but there were many things that were very confusing, and um, and hurtful. So. Um, to be able to um, understand that the 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 goal is not to have my wall up around everybody, but mm-hmm. to have it up around people who aren't safe, and to lower it for people who've been proven Absolutely. to be to be safe. So that's that's when when things change. But I want to go back to to you and. Um, speaking of objectification, mm-hmm. were there times in your life, especially when you were a younger woman, where uh, where you felt your body, your your sexuality, whatever it may be, in public, mm-hmm. where it felt like Jesus, I I I want to disappear because it it. Uh, it, it feels invasive or um, gross. Yes, and I think as I sort of got older and came into myself, and you know, this sounds a, a bit hokey. I do, and I don't know what was the exact trigger of it. It was like claiming the power to not accept that as, you know, if someone would either view me in that way, well, and here's the other piece of it. I mean, sometimes I found it lovely. You know, if I went to a bar and I got the attention of someone, yeah, I didn't mind that because I felt like I was in control. I was the one Mm -hmm. sort of deciding to go to that bar, which I knew was a safe place. I knew the bartender. Oh, my God, I was... But the attention didn't have a degrading quality to it. No, not at all. Were there moments when there was a degrading quality to it or something that felt, um, uh, I don't know, aggressive? uh, Oh, Oh, I think most women have experienced that. And again, I think there's a piece of it. I remember I was once in New York on a business trip um, and I would stay at the Hilton in Midtown and there was this adorable Irish bartender and I love an accent. I can't do accents, but Mm -hmm. he was just adorable. Um, And there was a guy really bugging me and I said something to the guy like, you know what, I'm just having a drink here. I'm just happy to be on my own. Um, and he was just obnoxious. And I remember like turning to him and I said, saying, no, you don't get it. There's nothing you're going to say right now that's going to don't buy me a drink. Don't. This is just my space. And then as it turns out, Liam, hello, Liam. Oh, that's British. That's mm-hmm. not Irish. Liam, this gorgeous bartender, this young guy came to, you know, stand up and said, listen, you know, don't leave her alone. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up having this very romantic, like, sudden fling with Liam, the young bartender. So, yes, I don't know if I answered any of your questions, but I wanted to say about safety. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I do think there is, every woman I know, any age, if I'm in San Francisco, which is a lovely place, but I live in the city, if I am walking from, we have a garage like a block from our house, if I'm walking to our apartment from our garage, I have my 
keys out. I mean, I still feel like it's 1980 and I'm taking back the night because there was, you know, so much rape and just scary stuff for women. And I always have the fear, and most women I know don't feel particularly safe in their own bodies, their own skin when they're out. Now, in, in San Francisco, in the neighborhoods I walk around, I do. Uh, you, you mentioned, you know, you said taking back the night. Uh, you made it sound as if that problem is not there anymore. Are you talking about San Francisco specifically, where it was more dangerous I, back then? I went to school in Ann Arbor in Michigan, um, Hail to the Victors, all that stuff. And in Ann Arbor, I think there was a, at that time, there was there was a serial rapist. There was something happening that the community of young women, you know, were, what are we twenty at the time, felt incredibly unsafe. And we were told, "Don't walk alone. Always with have someone." It's like, are you kidding me? And that so there was a, you know, there were a series of marches that I think were in D.C. Might have been nationwide. I don't know that were you know take back the night, take back your power. You are allowed to be able to walk somewhere by yourself. Yeah, and so many of the colleges would would only give instructions to women about how to change this. That is uh, so true. And the yeah. the I think a, a a lot of people, and I suppose myself included, um, that didn't really strike me as odd because I'd never really stopped to think about what it might be like to yeah. um be in the in the shoes of someone who yeah. feared for their safety going from their dorm to the the study hall. Oh, we had an escort service. You know, U of M student services thought it was a great idea and it was. I mean, it was a solution that if you were the undergraduate, you were the ugly, the library and you had to go back to Markley to go to your dorm and it's I don't know, a half mile away. You could call for an escort service. So campus police or whoever the volunteers were would come and walk you there. And it was a solution, but it does, yeah, it just does sting of... Yeah, and I'm not saying that that mm -hmm. shouldn't be done, but it's like, why isn't there also education for, uh, for men and... You know, it sounds kind of ridiculous on the surface saying, oh, so you're going to try to educate somebody who's committed to being a rapist. Right. But, but I, th- I, I think one of the benefits of talking about that is so that the men who aren't rapists can maybe be a better ally, to have yes. more compassion, to understand, to, to even just kind of have it sink in on, on some level. Paul, last night... When I was still in San Francisco before I, or whatever, two days ago when I was in San Francisco, I was walking from, I always figure out like where to park that's closest to my house if I don't park in the garage, if I can get a space closer so I don't have to walk that block, I do. And I was walking, you know, literally five doors and a young guy, he was just a dude. He had a backpack and he was walking behind me and I know the women out there can relate to me. And I turned around because I'm always checking, who are you? Mm-hmm. Are you, do you look at all threatening? I always, when I'm walking around San Francisco, or maybe I am crazy and maybe no one relates to this, I wait if I can. I do that ballroom dancing. I think before mm-hmm. the podcast we were talking about, I do ballroom dancing, which is great, but it's about a mile from my house. And occasionally I'll just want to walk back. So I get out. It's 9 p.m. San Francisco. I walk very intentionally. I keep my eyes out for couples that I can walk near. If anyone is at all threatening, I go into the bus lane where I know like city buses walk by. And maybe 
it's just me and I feel more vulnerable than I should. Um, but, you know, what is that? Shooting all over yourself, right? <laughs> I've never heard that, <laughs> yeah. that phrase. Um, but the fact is I do feel yeah. really vulnerable. And that's that's kind of a shame. I also I want to say sometimes I feel strong like ox. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's that. Do you when when you're experiencing those moments of of invisibility, is it are there ever times where it's coupled with maybe a a, a woman who um, I don't know what the word would be is kind of uh, intellectually vacant and getting all the attention. Mm-hmm. Mm, well, that's interesting. That is interesting. You know, I can't think of one, but I probably will. But when you said that, I had not connected this until literally just now. Um, my mom, who we may or may not end up talking about her, she was a, a she lived in Germany until she was eight, uh, lived in the time of World War Two, and. The Holocaust and all that, and she, uh, her family. She was an immigrant to this country when she was when she was eight or nine, and she fled Nazi Germany. Yeah, and I mean, I never knew that about you. Yeah. Oh, there is there's a ton of trauma for her. I mean, I think it's interesting the intergenerational trauma that oh, yeah. my it doesn't, sisters. It and, doesn't stick with the. Right. The, just the the Did survivor. You know? In fact, we did an episode on that about I don't know, maybe eight years yeah. ago. Intergenerational Holocaust trauma. Yeah, but go ahead. Oh, it's, and so she. Um, what two things about my mom? And she was phenomenal. I mean, magnificent woman, strong and loyal, and defended her daughters, her family, her granddaughters like nobody's business. I'm amazed that she ever died because she was just like woman of steel. But the fact is that covered her strength was a cover for the deep depression she suffered her whole life, um, which she never really got help for. I think she went to therapy literally one session with some dude who knows who it was. Uh, she suffered from deep depression that I, I think my sisters and I both believe was trauma related. Um, you know, because she was in Germany. Her dad spent, it's a little unclear from the documentation, but he spent some amount of time, six months to eight months in Dachau and escaped. It was before they did the numbering system. This was mm-hmm. early in the Nazi reign. He, they not, he did not have a number. Um, but my mom, my mom's sister and her mom left Germany under cover of night, went from Germany to Italy to England and had a sponsor. You needed a sponsor back then. Mm-hmm. Some incredibly distant relative in New York, Ilma Kearns, who sponsored them and they came to the United States. But she was eight. I have a granddaughter who is five, who seems fully formed like an amazing little person to me. My mom was three years older than Audrey is, and to think that an eight-year-old left her country, did not know English, had to learn English coming over, traumatized, did not know where her dad was, Um, and one of the stories she used to tell is when she, I think when she came to the United States, she didn't know a lot of English, there was a boy in her class she had German, long German pigtails, which is how they wore their mm-hmm. hair. And the boy in back of her used to take her pigtails and dunk them in the inkwells 
of their desk. So one day, in a very Ruth way, she was little, she just cut her pigtails off. Like, nope, that's not going to happen to me. I'm not going to be a victim. Her her mom, when I guess in the last year they were there in 1939-ish, her they all the Jews in the, in her little they she grew up in a town called Steinsfurt, tiny little town in Germany near the biggest city was in Mannheim, and I'm bastardizing the name because I'm bad with accents. But there was a Jewish school. She had to take an hour train ride by herself at age five to go to the German school that was for Jews, and my grandma to. An hour on a train by yourself at five. So my grandma would bribe. They only got a few eggs and a few rations of milk and meat. My grandma would bribe the conductor with eggs to look over little Ruth, my mom. I mean, you know, it's just you do you do what you need to do. Yeah. The the other weird thing, I had a friend at Stanford who suffered from depression and a lot. And what did you do at oh, yeah. Stanford? Ah, yes. I worked there for 25 years. I mean, so grateful. Are you retired experience. now? I am. I do coaching full-time now. Right. I do and that coaches. I knew, but I didn't know what the the Stanford. Yeah. Uh, what did you do there? I ran one of their alumni relations departments, and we put on massive events. We would do reunions. I mean, we'd have 13,000 people on campus for four days and do all kinds of stuff, and it was endless events and volunteer stewardship and and in the end I managed a team so I was the director of this one department and what I realized is although the events were very satisfying and exhausting what my favorite thing was always when someone from my team would look troubled down fragile and I would have a one-on-one with them and then we'd talk about what was really happening in their lives it wasn't always about work it was about their marriage it was about their kids and that's when I thought ah what I really want to do, I loved managing a team, and I events were great. In 25 years, I did it. But then I went down the being trained to be a coach, which you know I took whatever it was three years of classes at uh, I think in it's called uh, the Coaches Training Institute CTI outside of San Francisco, which is uh, life coaching, correct? Life coaching. Oh, and what a terrible name for it. I mean, it sounds you know the minute you say life coaching, the you know, the eyes roll. People are like, oh God. Paul, it is so friggin' amazing. Um, I, two things about coaching that are true. They always say you'll fall in love with your clients, and you do. Whatever but, they're but dealing with. But you don't mean it. romantically. No, but you yeah. just have such empathy for what they're experiencing. And, you know, I firmly believe that you walk down this uh, any street, anyone you see, anyone you bump into, everyone's dealing with something. Mm-hmm. Physical, mental, you know, emotional, relationship family. And so when people come to me, it, most of it's by word of mouth. Um, it's amazing to understand their story, where they are. And the big thing about coaching is it's – there's a – if I may, there's a great analogy I use. People ask me what's the difference between therapy, consulting, and coaching. And I think I came up with this, but if somewhere out there in listener land you came up with it, let me know and I will give you all the credit – if if you were an adult person and you wanted to learn how to ride a bike, here's the breakdown. So a therapist might talk to you about why you never learned to ride a bike as a kid and how sad that made you. Maybe you were deemed the unathletic one or your parents didn't have enough money to buy you a bike. So you that was not an option for you and how 
sad and hurt you are. That might not get you riding a bike, but at least you've worked through some of it. Um, But again, you're not riding the bike yet. A consultant would probably print out everything about riding bikes, get you all the manuals. They might even buy you a huge, expensive bike and give you all the information you need and make you feel really good about the potential. But, you know, by the end of the day, you leave the consultant, they charge you a lot of money, and you still aren't riding a bike. So the idea of a coach is we I hear 10 minutes of the past. I get, you know, 10 minutes of, oh, do you have a bike? Kind of a little bit of what the consultant gets. But then a coach puts you on the fucking bike. And we and I'm riding alongside you saying, okay, yeah, your balance is good. Oh, you're leaning to the left. Uh, Eyes up, eyes up. Watch that pothole. And I'm running alongside you. Run, 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 run until you're steady. You're going towards your future. And I let go. And I'm done. I love that analogy. I'm out. Yeah. And the goal of every coach should be not to be your coach anymore. Give you the tools. Yeah. Well. I am so glad you made the trip down here to mm. to talk about um, these these things, and um, it's so great seeing you every mm. Sunday mm. Uh, in the waiting room. You're such a, a big and important and compassionate part of uh, of that, and I just uh, I appreciate you. I do too, but I'm not going to let this go because I I fucked up. Here I'm swearing. I'm such a potty mouth. It's so nice to be able to swear. At work, mm-hmm. I could never swear. I was always like, don't swear. Paul, I was going to start this out with something that I think you are going to be tempted to cut. Please don't cut it. Okay. Manny Mo, if you're listening, don't let Paul cut this. I have listened to you since the very first episode, on and off, on and off, um, many, multiple times, three, four. You are phenomenal. What you do, how you how you talk to people, I've experienced it now, so in some ways I'm glad I'm saying this later. You are empathetic, you're deep, you, know, you are a deep cat, and you have such an ability, I see this in the group a lot, to bring people out, to understand how the group dynamic is. And for some people, it's beyond, I go to you for comfort and for validation that, wow, the world's complicated and all the the stuff you bring to light. But I know some people, you know, have gone to you in very dark moments where you are their lifeline. You are the voice. Someone said the other day, just your voice is such a, a, a bit of heaven, like a pillow. We can go in and, and feel reassured. So I want to thank you on behalf of all the people who are nodding their heads and saying, yeah, that Paul guy, he is just, I mean, it's very fangirl of me. And I don't fucking care because you it are doesn't phenomenal. Feel that, it doesn't feel that way, and I'm I'm actually uh, comfortable taking Good. taking that that in. Over the twelve years of doing this, at first it was like, oh, I better make fun here. Mm-hmm. People are gonna if I don't interject something, people are gonna think I'm full of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I've I've um, uh, I'm getting better. At uh, not thinking that it's a bad thing to just let somebody love on me. Love on you. Yeah. And so we're ending this. So I, w- I wanted to end it with some great thing because sometimes people, it's like, oh, it's over. And I was going to try to memorize, you know, may the, may the sun always be shining, the wind at your back. But I think I will end it the way I end most things. You look like you're hungry. Go eat something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You are Jewish. <laughs> I'm Jewish. Yes.
Indeed. Thanks, Thank Paul. you, Leslie. What a sweet soul. And uh, really love talking to her. And I, I can't believe that we've done the podcast for 12 years. And that's the first time that we've done an episode about um, an older woman feeling, uh, feeling invisible. Very grateful to her. Let's see if we have an ad. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Mom, Wife, Liar. She identifies as straight. She's in her 30s, says that she was raised in a stable and safe environment, never been sexually abused, never been physically or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. I'm a burden on my family. I do not add anything positive to my family. I am broken inside in a way that can't be fixed. There's something fundamentally wrong with me. Despite shame from my bad choices and behavior, I continue. How can I live with myself? Darkest secrets. I never graduated college. My entire family believes I did. Uh, But I found out I was credit short to the required amount. Everyone had already congratulated me, planned a party, sent me cards. I couldn't bear to face the shame. I couldn't speak the words out loud. It was like my skin was on fire from the inside out, from the guilt. It haunts me to this day. You know, some questions that, that pop into my mind or observations. Number one is you're really, really hard on yourself. And number two is... It might be worth exploring why it is that you feel that you can't share this with your family. Um, Are they shaming? Um, Is there conditional love rather than unconditional love? Because, you know, not graduating college and pretending you did is, you know, it's, it's not the end of the world. And it's not like, you know, you killed someone. Um... I think people hearing me read this survey feel for you. Like, my God, you are just so hard on yourself. (sighs) Sexual fantasies most powerful to you, rape and rough. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could tell my partner the truth. Uh, What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could go back in time to when I should have made a better choice and correct it. I bet that's a common one. But I wonder what my life would have been like if I was a better, less selfish, more responsible person. You are so, so hard on yourself. So shaming. And I wonder where that voice came from. Have you shared these things with others? No, I wanted to, but it was physically painful. And then days, months, years passed, and it was too big. How do you feel after writing these things down? Glad I told someone. I feel sad and ashamed. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I'm sorry you are experiencing this too. Thank you for sharing that. And um, ah, that, that, that breaks my heart. That breaks my heart. This is from the love survey filled out by Emu, and they write, I love the smell of pine trees. I live in Australia, and so the only time I smell it is around Christmas 
when people are selling Christmas trees. It reminds me of the summer when I was 11 years old when I felt like I was happy before the high school, uh, which was terrible. It was the only year my family ever had a real pine tree, and it brings back such happy memories. But it's such a hard scent to come by here. It's something special to me. I love that one. Yeah, there is. Even though I'm not a big fan of Christmas, I do, I do love the smell of, uh, of Christmas trees. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Mrs. K., she identifies as straight. She's in her 30s. She says that she was raised in a totally chaotic environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, I was molested around age nine by an older girl in my apartment complex. I never told my mom. I don't remember feeling shame, but do you remember feeling fear? I was sexually assaulted in my teens after smoking entirely too much pot. I woke up in his bed and he was on top of me. All of my clothes were on and he was dry humping me. I don't really know now if I didn't have the capacity to wake up enough to try and stop him or if I was pretending to be passed out so he didn't get violent. I was raped when I was 23 by my best friend's husband. I went to the hospital for a rape kit but ended up not going through with it. I'm not sure how I feel about any of it. She's been emotionally abused. Between my biological father and an ex-husband, the following methods were used to emotionally abuse. Verbal attacks, gaslighting, control and manipulation, isolation, uh, threats and intimidation, emotional neglect, and validating emotions. As far as being physically abused, I'm still not certain if I have an actual memory of my bio father being physical with me or if I made it up. My ex-husband would poke me in the sternum and get up in my face in a threatening way, but nobody's ever punched or kicked or hit me outright. And, you know, to which I would say, it, you know, physical, physical abuse can be the threat of being physical with someone because our central nervous system, I don't know, there's not a big difference between being physically assaulted and, you know, being sure that we are about to be physically assaulted or not knowing if that is going to come true or not. Um, any positive experiences with abusers? Sure, there were positive experiences. No, it does not complicate my feelings, but I'm well away from that time in life. Probably back then it did complicate things. Darkest thoughts? I can't think of any. Darkest secrets? I can't think of any. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My only sexual fantasy is one where I either, either feel 100% connected to the person or 0% connected to the person. Anywhere in between feels forced. Thank you for filling that, all of that out. And I'm so sorry that you experienced, uh, so many horrible things as a, as a kid and as a, uh, adolescent and as a grown woman I appreciate you you going back deep down into the uh, the icky to talk about it this is from the what has helped you survey and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Winnie the Pooh 
And uh, what are your issues or struggles? Sadness and anxious feelings, binge eating, skin picking. Uh, I am not diagnosed with any mental illnesses. What has helped you deal with them? Taoism and meditation. And then four exclamation points. Taoism is a Chinese philosophy which was created by Lao Tzu, which talks about accepting things, understanding that nothing is perfect, that balance is important, nature and the seasons are important. Important People shouldn't have desires, but instead be flexible. Desires lead to disappointment, so just do what is most natural. Go with the flow and don't force things. It's helped me so much with overcoming my black and white thinking. Meditation also helps a lot with this. I meditate 30 minutes each day. I think black and white thinking is really my biggest struggle because it makes me think either it's all over and I should completely give up or it's all amazing from now on and will never not be amazing, which of course sets me up for disappointment. I love it. I love it. Yeah, black and white thinking. It's a motherfucker. And amazing. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls him Phoenix, and then it's uh, and it's three X's at the end of his name. Um, he is in his thirties. Um, he identifies uh, sexually as other. Uh, he wrote, I am open to anything and everything. He says that he was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, I've been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, he doesn't elaborate. He says that he has never been emotionally abused. He's not sure if he's been physically abused. Uh, any positive experiences with abusers? I don't know if it was classified as abuse. Uh, then I didn't realize it because I started to like it. Darkest thoughts. And and by the way, those are two separate things. You know, our body can feel pleasure while our soul is uh, recoiling or feeling overwhelmed by, by something. You know, I think that's, that's one of the things that people who have never experienced that don't understand is that, you know, part, part, I think people who have never experienced phys uh, sexual abuse tend to think that it's, you know, about body parts and, and physical pain or, or being, you know, restrained. And sometimes uh, it, it, it can just be, it's too intense, you know, and that person uh, was, even, even if they were feeling sexual pleasure, it, it just kind of overwhelmed their central nervous system. Uh, darkest thoughts. I'm embarrassed and ashamed to admit that I've often thought about what it would feel like to be chained to a bench or tree in town naked and experimented on. Darkest secrets. My biggest secret is that I lost my virginity and was taught and shown what to do by my older sister. And I always do as I'm told when told to or she wouldn't teach me anymore. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I want to experience everything and try everything at least once, but I get scared to say anything unless it's to my sister. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Nothing specific. What, if anything, do you wish for? Someone who is willing to take control. Have you shared these things with others? 
Not directly, mainly because I'm scared I will ruin everything. How do you feel after writing these things down? A lot happier. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I don't know of anyone who does. Man. Thank you for for filling that out. And if you're listening, I really, really want to encourage you to to find someone to to open up to, you know, preferably a, a mental health professional or a or a support group because um it sounds like like um it sounds like you're struggling. It sounds like you're struggling at and I don't mean the the um you know, we have no control over what our sexual fantasies are, what what turns us us on, but we do have control over over how we choose to express them um, in in ways that you know hopefully are respectful to ourselves and and to others and and don't erode the quality of our life or the life of 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 someone else. This is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this is uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself Stephanie. Uh, what are your struggles? Needing to laugh more. What's helped you deal with them? Not taking things so seriously. What, if anything, have people said or done that's helped you with your issues? Uh, And she writes, those Bachelor shows. I imagine the moments that aren't on TV, like when each evening of drinking and icky flirting is done, the production staff brings in a wheelbarrow and drunk people climb in or they are gently picked up off the floor and placed into the wheelbarrow and taken to a detox room. I can't watch those Bachelor shows in their entirety, but I imagine they all drink a lot of booze. Then I tell my loved ones about my thoughts, and we all laugh. Thank you for that. That uh, I got to say, that is the first time I've had that one, but I am definitely a fan of taking, taking ourselves less seriously, man. It's, uh, whew, that is something I definitely, definitely struggle with. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Alicia, or no, I'm sorry, Alice likes cake. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 30s, says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. And also some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. She writes, when I was 13, my best friend's 40-year-old uncle got us blackout drunk and came on to me. I remember his hand on my thigh between my legs, then remember being in his bed. Then his girlfriend came home and tried to beat me up. I ran away and cried. So fucked up that you were the one that she beat up. Uh, My best friend made me promise never to tell. After that, I blackout drank regularly. I was sexually assaulted a year later by two 17-year-old boys at the same time. I was too drunk to consent. When I told my parents about both these incidents, the friend's uncle and the boys, they said it was my fault because I was drunk. Wow. Wow. Today I listened to your show and realized I experienced covert incest and many physical slash verbal boundary violations by my father. 
I have also been forced to have sex in a long-term relationship. Uh, she's been physically abused and emotionally abused. My brother frequently physically and verbally assaulted me throughout my childhood. My parents did nothing. My first phys physically abusive relationship was age 16 to 18. I lived with him. He also cheated on me. My first marriage was emotionally abusive. He was a narcissist and a drug addict. My second and current marriage, although better than the first, is emotionally abusive. There has been infidelity. I'm thinking about leaving. I think about it all the time. Any positive experiences with abusers? Definitely. I'm realizing I'm addicted to validation from men, and I felt painfully in love with and addicted to male partners in spite of their treatment of me. I recommend this book all the time, but I, if you're listening, I think it would be worth checking out the book uh, Facing a Love Addiction by Pia, Pia Melody. Uh, darkest Thoughts. I think about my husband dying and running away from my life. Darkest Secrets. I was very hypersexual as a child. I feel a lot of shame about things I did. I've struggled with addiction, and my daughters, 11 and 18, have been affected by all my choices. I feel immense regret for many of my choices. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. This is terrible and fucked up. I fantasize about being a child and a willing participant in sexual activity with adults or my husband having an affair with an underage girl. I'm very ashamed of these thoughts. You did not you do not choose to have those feelings inside you. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my daughters I'm sorry for all the mistakes I've made as a mom, but I never want them to feel responsible for my feelings, so hopefully I can just make it up to them and break the cycle in our lives. I would really encourage you, if you're not in therapy currently, uh, oh yes, it, a little later down she talks about my therapist. Uh, what, if anything, you wish for? I wish I loved myself and felt I deserved to feel good and be loved. Isn't it interesting how we can know that intellectually, but we can't get there emotionally? Have you shared these things with others? Some things, yes. Even with my therapist, I hold back because I'm afraid of how she will see me. I was raised in a house where outward appearances were the most important and things were hidden slash not discussed. How do you feel after writing these things down? Pretty ashamed, actually, but also sorry for my child self. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Not everything is your fault. You don't deserve to suffer and be abused. You have inherent value no matter your choices and mistakes. Isn't it amazing how we can be spot on about talking to someone else and yet we can't? talk that way to ourselves. It never ceases to amaze me. Sending you some love. And then finally, this is from the loves survey, speaking of loves. And this is filled out by, oh, I don't have the name on it. Uh, but they write, uh, I love water, being in it or near it. I love the ocean. I remember going on beach holidays as a kid with my family. I live in South Africa, 
and my British mum always insisted we take holidays, even when my parents were pressed financially. We would always camp at this beautiful place in the Eastern Cape. Super cheap, super quiet, sand dunes, rock pools, empty beaches. Anyway, in those times, when I thought I was straight and had not had any romantic experiences beyond those with girlfriends that I fooled myself about, I would stop sometimes mid-walk on the beach and breathe it all in. I'd feel the wind and taste the salt of the ocean and think very intensely about whoever I currently had a crush on. In parentheses, this imagination of mine was highly accomplished and included a deeply besotted writing practice. The writing of it all would just hit me so hard and all over as I stood there staring at the waves. Now that I'm older and have had a few real-life love sagas, I've learned that this intense feeling of heavy-hitting romance is a place that's internal to me, and mindfulness has taught me that if it doesn't even require narrative, that it doesn't even require narrative or reason. Real-life love is wonderful but different. Relational energy, reciprocity, water love is simple ancient and perfect. I love rain. I live in Johannesburg and here we get the most amazing summer thunderstorms. They can be kind of frightening with hectic lightning and very loud thunder, but it's a warm thrill, especially from the day bed in my lounge, which is my favorite place to be in a storm. I switch off the lights, open a window and get under the blanket to watch the curtains billowing dramatically and feel stray drops spraying inside until the window decision is no longer viable. If I'm having a terrible day and it starts to rain, I almost always hear myself whispering, thank you, and then retroactively often realize what a tough time I was giving myself. It's all quite cute. How does rain make things suddenly less consequential? I would love to be more like rain. And I love to swim. As I mentioned, I grew up in Johannesburg, a not-too-fancy suburban area. We had moved from the UK when I was three, a mixed-race family of seven, just a year after democracy in South Africa, in parentheses, those stories for another time. And my mom sent me to this teenage girl swimming teacher's house, let's call her Kay, uh, to learn to swim. Kay was about 16 at that time. And I think of her more and more often now because she was such a wonderful force in my life. She taught me to dive and swim in the pool in her garden, and I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. Then graduated to the 25-meter free public swimming pool just around the corner from our house. Aside from school, the public pool was the main second location of mine and my siblings' upbringing. Kay, the swimming teacher who had very entrepreneurially set up her own small, small business, took us for lessons and training along with other kids in the neighborhood for years. I was there all the time between about ages 4 and 13, and it is truly one of the things in life I am most grateful for. My introduction to water in this way is classically urban, very Joburg. Chlorine, concrete, laps, but water did its thing, and water does its thing, regardless of Joe Berg's cosmopolitan ugliness or any other place. It has been through explorations of water's otherness, where the body is no longer subject to physical realities or burdens of air and earth's life, 
that have been rescued in adult life over and over again. That we are mostly made of water means this makes deep sense. There's home in water. I think we are all called by it. Damn. Damn. That was poetic. If you are not a writer, get on it. Because that was some good shit. If you are out there and you are feeling stuck, there is help. There is help. Our tribe is out there. It's just a matter of finding it. Does this get repetitive the way I close the show? I don't know. I don't care. I'm glad I reached out for help 20, 20 plus years ago. I'm glad I stuck around, even though I was convinced I shouldn't, because I've gotten to experience so many amazing things and, and so many awful things that I didn't think I was going to get through and I managed to get through and found little silver linings on the other side of them. But if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.